0: All right, stay with me. I'll be right back after this.
1: Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. You're
0: listening to 101 Part-Time Jobs with me, Giles Bitter. I've got Jamie Lenman here, who's to release his new album, King of Clubs, this Friday on Big Scary Monsters. I sort of ignored my own raison d'etre here and kind of only got to part-time jobs at the end of the podcast but whatever you know no rules here jamie takes me through all of kind of reuben's adversities how they ended how he started making records in his on his own and he's got a wonderful incredible story and a wonderful way of talking about it east London signature brew have been brewing music inspired beers and supporting live music since 2011 you may know them from their collaboration beers brewed with the likes of mastodon idols slaves Mogwai, Shikari, and they've even now done a Jamie Lenman Lemonade which came out after this interview was done. As a listener to this podcast you can get 10% off all their beers by visiting signaturebrew.co.uk and using the code 101podcast at checkout. That's all capital letters for 10% off. All right this is Jamie Lenman. Enjoy. Cheers. I think you like me better now. Thank you so much for chatting to me. I, uh, I, have a, I was back at my mum's house the other day and I was going through photos. Oh, yeah. And I've got a, pic, I've got a picture of you and I and, and the drummer and bassist of Ruben. Oh, yeah. And I thought, well, in Milton Keynes from the pits.
2: Uh, from the what? Because where was... Leisure Centre. It's like a Leisure Centre vibe. Dude, was it like a sort of a wine bar type affair? Um, or was it with 100 Reasons? It was, it was with 100 Reasons and Dave House. I remember that one, yes, indeed. Because our other drummer got up and played um, a song with us. That was great. So you had the four members of Reuben, even though they weren't four members at any one time. Yeah, I you remember. You had your old show. drummer come on then. Uh, if it's the show, I remember. Yeah, I remember a big yeah. hall, and I remember like the doors were open on the side, and and it was a mm-hmm. hundred reasons weird. Yeah, and Mark from um, the Pilot EP came up and did a number from the Pilot EP, and then but then Guy. Because on the pilot EP, there's this weird like double. We dubbed on some hi-hats that were impossible to play. and But Guy <laughs> came up and played the hi-hats when Mark was doing the ride and the snare. And we thought this was super cool. And it was, you know, <laughs> that's my abiding memory of that show. The other show we played in Milton Keynes was the worst show I'd ever played. And I only got through it by um, transcendentally leaving my own body. So <laughs> <if> <laughs> I best you weren't ask. at that one.
0: <laughs> that uh, that hi-hat's getting do, doing the symbols afterwards. I feel like that was a technique that was really came into prominence in the early, sort of mid-2000s.
2: Oh, no, yeah, it wasn't. I know what you're talking about. I mean, no, we never did that. We were always uh, very frightened that Billy Talent would talk an awful lot about, yeah, doing the cymbals separately. And we nearly did that on shuffle. And my drummer, Dan Campbell, was not very pleased about it. That's that's a whole nother level. Um, mm. No, I, what we did at the time on the pilot thing, just we weren't very good at, like, programming. We didn't know anything about how to get a little trap hi-hat in there because we didn't have any computers or anything. So I just did it. We Mark played the drums and then I did these weird trap hi-hats afterwards myself because we didn't know how to do anything. But yeah. Drummers have it hard, I feel. Recording for drummers seems like I'm not a drummer. Yeah. Drummers have it hard in my bands, let me tell you. Jesus Christ. Yeah. And every every studio session, certainly in, in the band days, um, was very difficult. Now I employ drummers and they're on the clock. They better get it right first time or they're out on their balls. So it's a little bit easier. But yeah, back in the day, it was very stressful. Yeah. So
0: what was your life like around them personally? Because I was, I was at a, an impressionable age then and yeah. thinking that everyone on stage was kind of doing this as a living. Hmm. What, what, was your, what was your home life like around that time?
2: Uh, well, if it was a hundred reasons tour, if it was around that, I I probably I, that was probably just on the cusp of um, still living with my parents at age twenty five. Twenty five? No, I moved out a little bit earlier than that, but it still felt very old. You know, when all my other friends mm. had left home at eighteen to go to university, uh, and we we would visit them on tour, and I would see them living. With what I realize now as a sort of university is sort of a grown up uh, crash, isn't it? You, you're not <laughs> yeah. really independent, but it's your first move towards independence. I know now you mm. shouldn't eat toast for every meal and whatever, but they they seem so grown up and sophisticated to me. My friends that were living in halls and then living in their own apartments and I still had to like share a fridge with my mum when I got home from mm. the tours. So that mm. was very hard for me before in the, in the space, just before I finally moved out to my own place at 22, I think it was. Um, and I think a lot of the Reuben songs, I think some mothers do have them is specifically about still living at home at 21 and how I'll feel when I finally move out. I felt infantilized because It was not. I know many people live with their parents into their thirties these days, but uh, yeah. And and I felt like being in a band because yeah, we weren't able to earn any money from it. That was that was to blame, really. And I thought, oh man, maybe if I'd have gone to university, I could have had one of my own very own university halls flats. Wow, with a communal toilet, imagine that! And then you got to fight for an oven ring. Um, Right.
0: Download some MP3s on your LimeWire.
2: LimeWire, nice, good call. But
0: it's fascinating because when you see someone on stage there is like this respect that you have and so when you have that kind of dual life
2: <laughs> yeah we never felt that respect never no <laughs> that's the paradox of uh ruben of that band is that is that nowadays people talk about it with respect and and um admiration you know but at the time we just felt like the absolute lowest of the low. We felt rejected from every corner of society. we and That sounds a bit portentous, but <laughs> that is how it felt. We we felt rejected by, you know, our parents were saying maybe she got a real job and we we're like, yeah, thanks. And all our friends had gone to university and were getting careers. And then we, we were still mucking about in the kiddies box with our instruments. But then we also felt rejected from the music society because we found it very hard to get in print. Um, there was the big garage band vogue at the time and and we were incredibly unfashionable we could never get on the right bills they wouldn't even let us play reading for fuck's sake so we we felt rejected by every single corner of society and we didn't feel any respect or adulation and even when we were on stage we had fun on stage but i never felt any respect (laughs) uh yeah so that's funny
0: I was just thinking about what well, I was going to say, but then the Extra Mile thing must have felt like a big step. Uh, but I suppose Extra Mile became the name they are now through Frank Turner, which came years later.
2: I think you'll find they became the name they are now through Ruben. No, you're right. It's Frank he's done. No, it.
0: no, no, but well, no, but I mean, <laughs> seriously though, like, everyone does have their own, like there are people. Including myself, where extra mile was a name they knew before that. But I mean, to the the general societal view of it, you know, that you can everyone can kind of see.
2: Sure. Well, I'm. I mean, it's it's interesting that you say that because I'm not privy to that viewpoint. To me, extra mile. I don't know if extra mile. Uh, genuinely, this isn't me trying to downplay them at all because they're, they're my friends. Um, if they're like a big player, I've got no idea about that because all I know is Charlie and Danny and Anthea, who were my press agents at the time. Um, and I don't really see, I don't know if Extra Mile are a big label, you know. I mean, we chat all the time and they just stayed my buddies. And again, that's why lots of this stuff, you'd think like signing your first record deal would be a momentous moment. But it wasn't because, you know, we'd we'd floundered for years trying to get one. And then the label we signed to Extra Mile was actually just our press agents who had formed a label just so we could get a record deal. So they'd had to to come into existence just to help us out of the quagmire that we were in. And the same (laughs) thing with, you know, when we were number one on MTV, you'd think that would be, I always thought when I was a kid, oh, I'm going to be in a band and we're going to have videos on MTV and it's going to be great. But then by the time it happened... Because I'd seen all the cogs and nuts, it doesn't just happen like a dream overnight, like you win a competition and you're on MTV. We had to literally post the video ourselves on a VHS cassette to um, MTV headquarters in Camden. And then they played it on the radio, which is still cool. But because we'd done all the steps in between, it wasn't like this momentous leap. It was just like, yeah, well, that's the next thing that happens. And it took a lot of the mystery out of it, which is fine because if you go into a particular um, profession, then you're signing up to have that mystery removed. Uh, Like I'm doing to you now. Sorry, it was all boring.
0: (laughs) Everyone is entitled to their illusion, right? And I think especially now with when you see numbers. I mean, I was was reading uh, The Evening Standard the other day and I was reading an article about young blood. And the first three paragraphs was about how many followers this artist had.
2: Right, wow.
0: And this is the way that we, that's how people see things. Sure. I mean, when, when Ruben got to to number one on, the, on, on MTV, w- was that an anti-climax?
2: No, that's not. I mean, uh, maybe I've um, placed that in the wrong sort of setting. To, to get on MTV, was, it was still exciting. It was just that uh, you imagine when you're a kid, when you watch. It's funny that the way that pop culture... Um, treats being in a band. If you watch like a a kid's show or a TV show about becoming a a rock star or whatever, we used to watch like Pug Summer and it was always like you're in a band, you practice in your bedroom for one week and then you play at a disco and the head of BMG happens to be at the disco. He says, you're a star. And then before you know it, you've won smash hits, (laughs) you know, and you're in a, a studio with a music director and whatever. And it's not like that. But that doesn't mean that when you have gone through all the intermediate steps that no one knows about uh, and done most of it yourself, like we did, it's still cool to see yourself on MTV. Christ. I had no idea. In fact, they didn't tell us I was watching um, a McCluskey video. No, I wasn't watching a McCluskey video that came on afterwards. Basically, I wasn't warned for when we were going to come on MTV and I was just watching it. And then there was a video and I was like, Oh God. And I, you know i thought oh i look fat or uh, oh this looks low quality and yeah and then and then when it got to number one that no that was exciting and then they asked us in and that was exciting but it it, what i mean to say is it wasn't this sort of dream fantasy world i should have known that the stories that i was being told in pop culture and in movies about kid joins band becomes famous were fantasies but Mm. no one says this no one no one says that this is a fantasy and it's the same with um hate to get on my high horse here. But it's the same with the sex industry and, and with porn. I It sounds like I'm taking this to a weird place, but really, trust me, it's connected. You know, kids get a lot of their ideas about sex from porn. And no one mm. says this is a fucking fantasy, man. It's Superman. You know, right. this isn't real life. And so they end up with skewed ideas. And I ended up with, with skewed ideas uh, from porn when I was a kid because no one said this isn't real life, man. And it was the same with the music industry. Uh, so when a lot of those uh, uh, illusions were shattered in both music industry and sex, (laughs) Uh, that was hard to come to terms with. Um, Do you see what I'm saying? You have to learn it on your own, don't you? You do, you do.
0: Not to talk about amateur porn here, but I find it interesting that uh, when you said one of your first instincts, you know, is this low quality? I think that's what attracted so many people myself included to reuben you know it was that that gave it this punk rock vibe that i was very much attracted to
2: yeah i mean that was another sort of um millstone that was hung around our necks you know we'd 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 say like um can we get a record deal to this big company and and we couldn't get a record deal and we we were waiting to make our album and then someone said well why don't we just make one ourselves let's make a single ourselves and let's make. Uh, a video ourselves to show people what we can do and so we did that yeah and they went well and then when we'd go back to the record companies they'd say well you've been doing it great on your own and we'd be like no Mm. that was like a proof of concept and 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 then it started to appear um you know handmade band self do-it-yourself band, Ruben, and we're like, oh, God, it was never supposed to be this. We we just had trouble finding the deal. And, uh, yeah, and then record labels would say, well, you don't need any money. Look at you. Yeah, we'll sign you, but you don't need money. Great. I've got this band, Ruben, they do it all themselves. They don't need any help or money. <laughs> and so that's yeah, what happened to us. We sort of dug our own grave.
0: So so how did that end? I mean, if, if that's not too weird of a topic to talk about these years later. And kind of what kind of place were you in personally?
2: How did Ruben end? yeah. Oh, man, uh, in absolute uh, ashes. And I was in an incredibly bad place. Personally, I hated myself and I hated uh, the guys in the band. And I hated our manager, which is the worst thing, because they were all my my good friends. And I was sick of uh, always shouting at them and uh, having them shout at me. It ended in absolute despair, really, really terrible. And, I, you know, I, I get a bit confused when people say, Oh, my God, it came out of the blue. And you think, Listen to our actual songs. One of them was called "Suffocation of the Soul." What did you think that was about? Uh, and so that's, I mean, if yeah, if you want to know how I ended, listen to "Suffocation of the Soul." That's pretty clear. I was dying, um, and I narrowly avoided some kind of breakdown. I came very close around the filming of the um, "Deadly Lethal Ninja Assassin" video. It sounds weird to say it, but I nearly had a breakdown on that one just because everything, because we were running our own label by that time and that was another mistake and you know we tried our best and uh, and again lots of other people would come up to me afterwards and say hey i want to run my own label just like you guys did you were such an inspiration and it nearly killed us nearly bankrupted us nearly got mm. us into so much trouble with the tax man because we didn't know what we were doing and the thought that other people might follow our example was just terrifying so yeah unfortunately it ended um i mean it's like what they said um no, I'm not going to go there. <laughs> it, it, we're all alive and we're all friends, right. so it could have been much worse.
0: And so how how long did it take for you to again on a personal level to get back on your feet and get excited about life again?
2: Oh, it took it actually was quite short. It was well to get excited about life again, I got excited about life again straight away because the band was a huge thing that was dragging me down and making me miserable. And everyone, you know, all my close friends and colleagues, you know, noticed the change in me. And it was a long thing that had a slow corrosive effect over maybe five or six years. So as soon as the band finished, I felt absolutely brilliant. I felt like a new man. I felt like I'd only just been born. It was amazing. And I had a year, a really wonderful year where I didn't make any music and I was just free to be myself, and I did things that other people did. And I went and visited my friends that I hadn't seen for years because I'd always been on tour. I got my life back. It was really quite um liberating. And
0: Was it strange to not write songs though? Because th- I, th- I feel like there is something about the soul when you're writing songs. There is this kind of deep inner purpose. Well, it it
2: sort of came, it came back and they they would always, I think there's a song, uh, I only reference my own songs. I'm not trying to get like PRS points or anything for lyrics just because <laughs> a lot of the stuff I say, I realize, I'm I about to say it and I realize, oh, it's a lyric from whatever song. So I, I, I feel like I need to point it out. There is a song, Agony Agatha, about how the words were always going around in my head and they wouldn't go away until they finished. That it really, it's like I'd taken a pill. That disappeared for about a year. I didn't hear any of those voices and it was great. And I could get some fucking sleep. And then Uh, after about a year, they started to come back. The song started to come back. And so did the bad feeling. It's a very weird. I then, you know, having having been on on the verge and the threat of uh, depressive periods at the end of the band, well, I was definitely in, I then sunk into an even lower low when I started making Muscle Memory. It's a bizarre um, relationship with music I had this year when I was fine. And then oddly, as soon as I started to sort of make music again and start jamming out with Dan Cav, who drummed on Muscle Memory and Devolver and Shuffle. I started feeling really bad again, even though I was enjoying making the music. And I and I don't know if they were related, but they probably were. It was a weird thing. And by the time Muscle Memory came out, I was fine. But maybe it was a delayed reaction from the band. I don't know. The way to talk about it now, it does sound like that sort of free year I got. Maybe I was even in shock. <laughs> and, I, and I had this year of, of feeling great. And then all of a sudden I had another crash. It's very weird. I, I can't really explain it.
0: The saddest lyrics are often the ones that are just, you know, the most poignant and the ones that touch people the most.
2: Those are the most interesting, um, truthful experiences. I, I sort of realized quite early on that you can't make good art without experiencing pain and nothing that's ever been worth doing has ever been easy. You know, the band taught me that and um, all of the, certainly all of the music it's it's slightly different drawing cartoons the other side of my life there's not much painful about drawing cartoons although it is a struggle to find your own voice in in that area as well but with the music certainly all of the albums i've um uh made have have involved putting myself in difficult spaces and have involved struggle and hurt at some point um and i think that's when the best art comes out yeah so i I don't mind going there on the art as a, as an illustrator, when did that start for
0: you? And when did you start getting commissions?
2: Well, I didn't get commissions until very late. I was drawing before I picked up a guitar. So I was always drawing and um, drawing my of the cartoon strips. I was very taken with the syndicated uh, three panel strips like uh, Peanuts and Garfield. So I always wanted to do that. And I got a commission. It wasn't really a commission because it wasn't paid. But when we started playing gigs and the magazines would come to the shows to review them I managed to corner Darren the editor of Rock Sound mm. and I knew they didn't have a cartoon and I loved Pandora Ray Zales Pandora in Kerrang and I wanted to do my own one
0: yeah I love that
2: and uh, and so I said to him you need a cartoon like Pandora and he said well I can't afford it and i sort of stupidly but no it was a good move i said look i'll do you one you'd have to pay me and he said great so for a couple of years i did um the uh a strip called Rockbot for rock sound magazine which no one ever read but it was a great experience for me even if it was unpaid which is fair enough um to learn about publishing and about what you can and can't do in the public sphere and to grow my craft i think the first Money commission I ever got was in Doctor Who magazine, which happened after I got fired. How would you get fired from an unpaid position? But I got fired from Rock Sound, <laughs> uh, and then I and then I hustled Doctor Who magazine because I was looking for another cartoon to do because I got the taste for it. And I hustled Doctor Who magazine for quite a while, and they're the first people that paid me for my art. Imagine that! Wow, I just went to them. I was incredibly naive. I think I even called the editor from a, a payphone maybe i didn't even have my own phone and again and you know i sent stuff in the post we were still sending stuff in the post i just sort of badgered him a bit and he said things that because he was a very um mercurial guy the editor at the time and even now i don't really understand what he's saying um and he said lots of stuff that i thought was a rejection and then when i got hold of him you know a year and a half later with some new bits he said oh, I, th- I was waiting for more contributions why didn't you sending him more stuff and I said well I thought he said no you didn't like it. he said no no that's just me saying like make it a bit brighter or draw a mustache on him so it was quite it was very personal it was a personal thing between myself and the editor which which I found is is how it goes down you, you form a personal link with them these editors again they're not just faceless companies that you you send in and they go yes you're a star it takes a long time of getting to know someone before you find a space and I'm still working for Doctor Who magazine today they're my longest professional relationship i just been emailing them this morning about what we're going to do for the next issue i'm very great uh, pleased to have that connection
0: and that's something i talk about on this podcast a lot and my guests speak about is this this level just this serious level of self-motivation that is mm. required for art
2: yes it's it's huge and, and it's very hard to find it some days like today in fact all this week i've just rolled out of bed and asked myself what is this for you know and of course it's tough with the lockdown as well and I you know Mm. for performers we've had uh, it feels like having a leg cut off or an arm cut off very weird
0: presumably not much has changed for your illustration world though in the last four months has has that gone up
2: no well it's weird actually um uh as of a couple of years ago as of really when I started working with bsm um and I don't uh, Again, I'm not sure if it's cause and effect, but it might be. Since sort of Devolver time, the illustration work has taken a huge dip. I was doing a lot of um, illustration stuff around muscle memory and um, after that, before Devolver. Since sort of Devolver times, last couple of years, uh, very low um, levels of illustration work, which of course has been fine because I've been touring and making records and that's that's great. Uh, and then when lockdown happened, I did think, oh shit, I could do some illustration work now. And a couple of bits did come along, which is great. But now they've sort of gone away as well. So now I don't have either. And I'm just sort of relying on, you know, if you're a a freelance artist, and you work for yourself, you um, you work out how to use your money wisely. And um, I'm just hoping I've been wise enough to weather the storm. I made two albums in 2019. I made Shuffle at the start and I made King of Clubs at the end. And in between, I did two tours and couple of supports and all over the place and festivals it was crazy and making all the videos myself and making all the promotional material 2019 was a crazy crazy year for the music so that was probably the the biggest imbalance between illustration and and music that I've had and I only really did my little monthly commission for Dr. Who mag at that point so yeah it was mostly music last year and that was six years on from Muscle yeah. Memory. Mm.
0: Just tracking back to that time, 2013. I remember seeing it and being like, "Oh, great! This, is, this guy from Ruben, you know, coming back." At that point, I mean, unwittingly, and I'm I'm I'm, I'm sure you, you won't feel the same, but I felt that there, were, that Ruben had developed this kind of cult status, mm. t- you know, for for a for a subculture of mostly British people. Yeah. So, where were you making that album, and then you know, then releasing it?
2: Oh uh, well. Uh yeah, I got to tell you that the the sort of cult status of Reuben actually it worked against me uh, because I felt like I had this sort of legend to live up to, and it made me very wary and cautious about making any new music because every every day there'd be some, you know, fresh accolade heaped upon me and and the longer people waited for new music the higher their expectations got which is why i didn't um announce the album i just put it out and was like mm. here you go deal with it because i didn't want i knew as soon as i said oh i'm gonna be making new music people would go oh and they'd, they'd all form their own ideas about what it was going to be and they'd all be wrong so i just sort of put it out there yeah it made a big difference to how i approached it i sort of wanted to just put it out um as a pay what you want thing i didn't um imagine putting it out with a label or anything and then extra mile got involved in it and we did a good job on it but it was very weird i was very trepidatious and i was very anxious about living up to this impossible ghost that people had created out of my old band uh i find that a bit easier these days but you have to remember that around muscle memory time not only was i coming out of um let's call it a depression for want of a better word i was also very unwell physically i gained a lot of weight and i was very um shy and hesitant and i think that comes through in the supporting materials and the shows that we did i was very unsure of myself so it was a a difficult time for me a fragile i was quite fragile emotionally and um it was really weird and i i I gotta say that, yeah that cult of ruben didn't help (laughs) because it it felt like I had to live up to my own self, if that sounds weird. And these days I have a much easier time with it.
0: Rock journalism is always going to talk about the things that happened before. And there's yeah. always going to be this, you know, it's its cruel, isn't it? Really? This comparative nature of it.
2: Well, it makes sense, but it just sort of gets in. I can see why people do it. And I wouldn't be like, how dare you? But it, it does have knock-on effects for the artists them, themselves. Yeah. If you're always going to be, you're always going to be compared to what people think your best thing is. Luckily for me, everyone disagrees about what that best thing is. So fine.
0: And then it was four years before Devolver. Mm. How, so did that, did that get better over those years? Did you, did you, you became more sure of yourself?
2: Uh, Yeah. I mean, doing muscle memory showed me and touring muscle memory showed me what I was capable of and what I wasn't capable of. I learned a lot about, um, Touring Muscle Memory and having a, a larger band and being, um you know, being a band leader instead of in a band, there's a difference. You know, being in yeah. in total control, um, yeah, and not having to answer to anyone, work all that stuff out. Yeah, they, I, I mean, now you say it, four years, God, it was a big gap, wasn't it? But again, do you know what? A lot of that was because after Muscle Memory, I learned from the mistakes I'd made. And I said to myself, right, if we're going to do this, let's do it properly and let's get a management team because I didn't have any management on muscle memory and let's get, um, you know, a proper press team. Let's get all things. Oh, and I had a press team, but I needed a whole bunch. I needed a whole society around me. It sounds weird. Whereas muscle memory, things were a little bit less organized. I wanted to do it properly. Um, and it just took a long time to assemble that team.
0: One of the things that people in... artists struggle with is knowing where and how to delegate
2: yeah sure I mean I was that's exactly right I thought on muscle memory that I didn't need a manager hey I can make all the decisions myself and that was not true so the first thing I did when I collected myself up to do something else was I started with the management and then it went from there and then they were so helpful in, in every aspect not only putting together the team but also putting together the record you know they told me which songs they thought really worked as a bunch because I just sent them everything I had and said which ones should I record and they picked you know 12 and that's what we did and and they had a very clear vision of what they wanted for me and it didn't always exactly overlap with mine but it overlapped enough to make Mm. sense and to work so yeah it worked out really and I think you can see in the results if you compare what happened with Muscle Memory to what happened with Devolver you can very easily see the difference in those two approaches and and, and what worked and and I'm very happy with um, what happened with Devolver and and since. It must have been like um, a a real vote of confidence as well, you know, to have
0: that manager, to have that support, to take yourself seriously.
2: Yeah, it was great. Yeah, that's what they're really good at. Uh, Matthew and Simon, my managers, they, um, yeah, they take me seriously and after years of I think that's the thing I need the most is just to be taken seriously like I said after years in that band of getting no respect and laughed off the stage I mean that's what it felt like and no one to give us any money or time to do anything felt like no one took us seriously to be taken seriously is maybe the, the thing I crave the most and so yeah that's why they're good maybe they see that in me maybe they maybe they're just humoring me God this guy needs to feel like we care what he says. But yeah, I do. However they do it, I do feel like they care what I say. And that's very important. How, how old are you now, if, if I can ask? I'm 37. I'm 37. Well, I couldn't just say man. Well, you could have said Dennis. I'm so sorry. Every time I remember my age, it's the age of Dennis, the old woman from Holy Grail. <laughs> old woman, man. I'm not old. I'm 37. So I'm 37. Sorry. I mean,
0: is, it, it, there must be something cool about growing up and being like, yeah, this is me. I don't have to worry about comparing myself to another 25-year-old.
2: Yeah, I really like being 37. Uh, you know, I always ha- I had a sneaky suspicion that I would enjoy growing old. And in fact, you know, I can't wait to be 90 and 100. I'm looking forward to it. Um, yeah, I like getting older. I, 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 think, uh, I think I'm think getting better. King of Clubs
0: is is obviously very exciting new album coming out this month when this, when this podcast goes out.
2: Yeah. What were the first moments when you started planning this record? Well, um, as I've gone on record to say, it uh, sort of evolved accidentally It was an accidental album. I didn't mean to make it. It was the label was saying, Oh, we should do it. Cause we all thought we were going to be touring in the, in the Easter this year, obviously it didn't happen, but that was the plan. And so around the end of 2019, they were saying, we want a single in the spring. We want a, an Easter single. And I was like, yeah, okay, can do. And I had a couple of tracks that would work for that. Um, so that was the idea that I was going to go in the studio in December and have something ready for the Easter period. And then I thought, well, I don't want to just do another single because we done, when we did Devolver, we sort of followed it up with Long Gone in Easter. And I didn't want to just repeat that pattern and have it like, oh, every time he does an album, he does a little single in the, in the spring. So I thought maybe I'd do like an EP. Maybe I'd stretch it out to four tracks and we can put that on a little seven inch and that would be cool. And then by the time I got to the studio, I had even more stuff and I was sort of caught between two places because I didn't want to, like I say, I didn't want to do just another one track, two track single to repeat the long gone thing, to buffer an album with a single. But equally, I definitely, definitely didn't want to do another album so soon after shuffle because shuffle was a big meal and i think people still need time to digest it and i don't know whether i hope i got the idea that people took it seriously as my third album i know a lot of fuss was made about the fact that it was technically a covers record but you know as far as i'm concerned it's my third proper full-length album so the last thing i wanted to do was encroach upon everyone's headspace of shuffle with another record straight after another full-length album So I had to sort of find somewhere between single and album and I just kept getting more material and I had to sort of stop myself short because, you know, we ended up with seven tracks, mini album, which really is just on the barrier of of how much um, info I wanted to give people to digest in another release. So it just kept growing and growing and I had to pull up the reins to stop myself even from making another full length. And and like I've said, I'm not sure I wanted to, would have wanted to make a full length of Kingdom Clubs because it's quite nasty and it's quite um, a dark place to be. And I'd actually wanted to make a mini album. I liked the format of the mini album um, for quite a while. So I thought, yeah, if we don't have an EP, I would have been happy with an EP. But I thought this could be even better if I just put in some light and shade. The tracks for the EP were going to be the sort of more immediate um, short, sharp shocks. And I thought that's fine, but if we could just add a bit of depth, then it could be really special. And that's what happened. Does that make any kind of sense?
0: Yeah, it it does. When you, I mean, when you say you know the lighter and the darker moments, it really highlights to me—no pun intended—highlights to me that uh, you know the smorgasbord of you know, and you, and you use the word appetite. I think that's such a great word to hmm. to use for your records because it is really a buffet of yeah. styles, isn't it? And I wonder you know, a lot of records like that kind of, you know, that kind of style that coming, that kind of format lends itself to concept albums.
2: I suppose, I mean, shuffle is definitely a concept album, not one that tells a story all the way through, but it, it had a, it had a framework and it had, you know, this is what we, this is what we're going to say with this. So yeah, you could call that a concept album. Um, I mean, it's a difficult thing. You can say a record has a theme without it being a concept album. So so king clubs definitely has a, a, a an ongoing theme which is about like uncomfortable emotions and and lots of negative thoughts and we we very purposely tried to make the sound dirty and dark but that doesn't i don't think that makes it a concept album muscle memory maybe that was a concept album because i knew going in i wanted to have one half heavy and one half soft but the then they don't really tell like a narrative in my mind a concept album usually sort of tells a story it's like a maybe like a rock opera but maybe that's a little bit too too narrow some most of the time yeah uh, i mean i got lots of i got lots of ideas for albums that aren't necessarily concept albums i think i think shuffle is possibly the only concept album i've made but that's not to say there there might not be others and king
0: of clubs as an album title it's quite an uncomfortable title as well because there is this kind of magnitude
2: of it you know yeah well i thought it I thought it had it had a lot of layers of um, humor to it. There was it actually came one of the tracks was supposed to be called King Cruel or King of Cruelty. And then I saw I'd done some artwork with a severed hand that had a club tattoo on the back. And that, that image really, I really enjoyed it. And then, and then I thought, well, why not I just call it King of Clubs? And then I could have like a card because I wanted to do a playing card as myself as a playing card and it all sort of tied in mm. but then I also thought to say that you were the king of clubs in a live sense because you know I'm I'm a club guy I'm a, <laughs> I'm always on the club circuit right to say that you were the king of the toilet circuit yeah. I thought that was a nice air of self deprecation there to stop it getting too grandiose even though I bought myself a fucking crown but you know uh, I I sorry thought, I'm not excuse me? Th- me the crown I bought myself a crown wow for the photo shoot, Expe- expensive crown what's yeah it's just a what cheap but of shit but it, oh, okay. you know, <laughs> it's not exciting it's not exciting uh but i you know I, I made it work for the photos but yeah i i don't know if anyone's picked up on that the king of clubs it's really it's a self-deprecating joke again to sort of undercut the pomposity of proclaiming yourself the king of anything and do you know what it's not even I, i'm not the king of clubs that's not the king of clubs of the title the king of clubs is the horrible wraith on the cover it's king of clubs is a representation of uh negative emotions so i hope that's not me but god maybe sometimes it is oh there's levels it's a striking cover i mean quite religious themes yeah i mean i i dab it i read a lot of um mike mignola i don't know if you know who mike mignola is he i don't created hellboy oh yeah and he His uh, comics, you know, I've got a library full of his uh, graphic novels and his art has been a great influence on me. And they're full of sort of medieval representations of uh, spiritualism and symbolism. And and actually, I'm a sort of amateur medieval scholar anyway. So I'm fascinated with them. Well, I'm fascinated with iconography as a start. You can see from Shuffle the way I set myself the task of as a designer Boiling down each of the tracks into a single um, icon, and so that iconography was always fascinating to me. And then the the club, I have. I mean, you you probably will believe me when I say I have several medieval packs of cards that I because I wow. love I love the way same. Everyone knows what the King of Hearts looks like, or, mm. or or the four packs, or the four suits of a deck of cards. But the variations that you can have within how those are rendered as simple everyday objects that everyone takes for granted. The spade, the heart, the club, um, the lightning bolt. What's the other one? The diamond. I love to see the variations in packs of cards. So I got a little bit obsessed with packs of cards and medieval iconography. And so the weird sort of elongated club, which is quite frightening really. And then that if there if there was a king of clubs, what would it actually look like? I just went down this whole rabbit hole of iconography and yeah, I, I suppose a bit of it is slightly religious that the club looks a little bit like a crucifix, doesn't it? That's no mistake. Mm. Um, but a, a scary crucifix. Well, crucifix is scary anyway.
3: So yeah, right. that,
2: that is in there. You're, you're quite right. Are you collecting old packs of cards from back yonder? Yeah, I got lots of, I got a weird, a very weird collection of packs of cards. Yeah, I'm looking at one of them now. Uh, I, you know, Where'd you I, find you know, them? medieval fairs you know i'm very middle-aged i go to when i used to when people were allowed outside i used to get an awful lot of medieval re- reenactments and medieval fairs i'm quite um uh, i spend a lot of my time reading about the uh, medieval europe and uh, collecting bizarre things i got a i got a bone cup i got a horn spoon i used to live in Wapping, and
0: there was a group that came up once a week once a month how and um they would be dressed up, all dressed up, yeah. going to some kind of you know reenactment. And at first, I thought it was silly, probably because I was scared of it and I didn't understand
2: it. And then I thought about it and I was like, no, that's actually really cool. It's really cool. I I thought it was silly for a long time when I was a kid. I think when you're a kid, you are always pushing for the new and anything from the old days, you think to yourself, well, that's done, they've done that. Why are we even talking about it? It's done, it's been done. But then as you get older, you realise that the the ramifications of things that happened in the past have on, on the present. I went to a reenactment of the, the Battle of Hastings last year, 1066, at the at mm. the place, at battle where it was originally fought. And it was wow. it was quite overwhelming because obviously they didn't have the same numbers, but there was a lot of Saxons and a lot of Normans. And I thought to myself, cause, and there was a commentator as well, and there was like, and now Harold gets the arrow in his eye and he's lost the battle. And I thought, oh, every year Harold does this. Every year, Harold gets the arrow in the eye and Norman wins the country. Why not just one year? Can Harold not win? Wouldn't that be lovely if the Saxons won just one year? (laughs) You're trying to rewrite history and be a journalist, Jamie. Well, maybe, yeah. But then I thought, if that did happen, what would... Because every year we reenact it and it just strengthens the facts. If you made Harold win, would that have the opposite effect? Would it reverberate backwards through time and turn out that we're all still Saxons? Well, then I went into another weird rabbit hole. Sorry. (laughs) love it love it Jamie. this has been such a fascinating chat thank you so much you're welcome
0: we didn't even really talk too much about the menial jobs uh, no i was wondering that was
2: gonna come up wow
0: well let's end on it why not we got our own we got our space here yeah where did that start where what was the first one that really had an impact on your life
2: oh my first my first job was working at littlewoods in camberley it was terrible as a just behind the till like selling like uh, nylon dresses day in and day out to uh, old ladies that was terrible Nylon dresses yeah like horrible um uh synthetic fiber clothes little ones used to sell like really nasty stuff but then they they would put me on they made lots of mistakes they'd put me on greeter which is where you literally would just take a member of staff and stand them by the door and have them say hello to people when you come in but i'd be like Hi, it's like a jungle sometimes. It makes me wonder how I keep from going under. Welcome to Littlewoods. And I i got <laughs> stopped from doing that a lot of the time. I used to pretend that the top half of my arms didn't work. I even, I served someone with two <laughs> false hands from a dummy once. Uh, quite often, one of my grief was that I would steal the hand off one of the shop dummies and use it as my own hand and um just for fun and people would get cross with me and i wouldn't do their bags properly and uh, i never i never intended for anyone to to assume that i um I was an amputee that this is a replacement for my natural hand I, I i just always thought everyone was in on the gag and one time i went too far i went way too far i got two hands from a mannequin so neither of my hands were functional they were just you know Worse than um, prostheses, because prostheses these days are pretty good and flexible. These were just dead stone hands. And I did this guy's entire shopping with these hands, just ruining it. And like I say, it was never my intention to to present to someone the fact that these are my real hands, that I was missing my natural hands, and I had these instead. But I noticed after a while that he was not getting cross with me, this guy, because I expected him to go, what are you doing? You know, and tell me to snap out of any second. And after about an hour of putting the stuff in a bag, he said, You're very brave. And I just felt so bad because when you're a kid, you don't think about, you know, there are people that don't have fucking hands and they have to, they work in a shop. And this guy was so excellent. What a guy. And, you know, I grew up a lot that day. And, uh, and (laughs) but like I say, I was just, (laughs) mucking around i wasn't (laughs) trying to impersonate an amputee but he he uh took it that i was an amputee and i felt terrible um but i got fired from that job i did lots of bad stuff i used to i used there used to be uh if you get models for modeling a shirt sometimes it's just the top of a mannequin i had lots of fun with the mannequins if they're modeling pants i don't know if you know this but we used to have just groins it was just a groin the to model just the pants right 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 so if you're modelling a watch, they have just an arm. Uh, yeah. If you, yeah, we. I had this groin and it was black, and it was just this black ass, and I just used to put the black ass on the table. And someone once someone even chucked a tip in there because it was hollow from the top. They had such a fun time. And I got fired from that job. <laughs> yeah. What
0: was so? What was when you got fired? Was that a was that a scary moment? Were you, did, you, did you feel like you had to had to make a change in your life?
2: no i just i i made one too many errors tonight yeah i was getting bored of the job it was it was so badly paid it was like i think i got like three pounds an hour but to me because i did four hours a week wow this is a big job uh that meant i could afford an album a week imagine that an Mm. album a week when you're fucking 16 or whatever so to me it was like an incredibly luxurious well-paid job uh it was just time for me to leave and I'd caused some kind of upset or whatever or maybe I'd tried to serve someone whilst doing a handstand or whatever. There was an old lady who was who wrote to Littlewoods to say that she was so terrified she'd never enter the store again while I was still working, which I was actually quite upset about because I was never nasty to anyone I, and I can't think what I did to upset this old lady so much. Um, people just found me very offensive. And um, we could do a whole week on this. I got stories. I've had other jobs that I got fired from, but yeah, that was my first job. It was um, it was a bad fit. I think that was the only job that I got outright sacked from. Or like I say, I got sacked from doing the cartoon at Rock sound No, I I left all I left all my other jobs amicably. Well, amicable as far as I was concerned, it was amicable. I mean, I've had some terrible jobs. I was the caretaker at my own school once. Like Kurt Cobain was a caretaker at a high school. I was quite up with that comparison I thought that meant that I could be the new Kurt Cobain because I was in a band and I was also a caretaker and I spent a lot of time as a waiter you had the jumper you had a jumper to to Kurt Cobain it was so depressing what I was doing (laughs) I worked at a chip shop for an awful long time and there's some bits on that dvd of um the Ruben dvd of me working at the chip shop all kinds of shenanigans just couldn't get fired it was like I was trying to get fired from the chip (laughs) shop one the one time I did an entire shift on Halloween as a zombie and I painted myself up like a genuinely terrifying zombie. And everyone thought, oh, that's funny on Halloween until they got the food served, because I would only walk at zombie pace. And I <laughs> stuck to it the whole way through, <laughs> uh, you know, lolloping through people's. And one time this guy, I just got so cross of things that people would say uh, there was late at a at a. I was working as a waiter and a guy uh, and I would say, is there anything else you want? And people would say stupid stuff. They'd say, a million pounds, please. Or this one guy said, oh, I wouldn't want to lift to the car park, you know, out to the through the kitchen door. Right. And I was like, fair enough. And I picked him up and I took him. I carried him through the restaurant. And he was going, oh, ho, 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 ho. this like middle aged guy who just made this joke about how full he was. And I had to use his own body to bump the door open because I couldn't. I carried him. I carried him to his car. That's how fed up I was of saying uh, of people saying stupid things when I offered them something else. And then another time, someone insisted on a birthday cake. They came in. they were like, "It's my birthday," and I said, "Big deal." And they said, "I want uh, give me the birthday meal, please." And I said, "Well, we don't have a birthday meal. We're a chip shop." And they said, "Right, well, I have the birthday meal." And the fish. they just wouldn't take no for an answer. So what I did was I I screwed a light bulb into their garlic bread. <laughs> I screwed a light bulb into their garlic bread and then I and then I took and then I took a a washing up glove and I blew it up like a balloon and I wrote had P Bert Dave on it and I put that (laughs) together with the meal and they were really happy they were really happy another time people in restaurants are so weird another time someone said can I have a cappuccino please and I said well no you can't we don't do cappuccino we only do coffee she said right I'll have a cappuccino they just don't listen to you and I said pay attention to me we don't do cappuccino. If you want, I can blow some bubbles through it into with through a straw into your coffee. And she said, "Yeah, that's fine." So that's what I did. Wow! Blue bubbles wow. into her coffee, and and she, and she yummed it up. It was mad. I could write an entire book on that chip shop and the shenanigans. It was. That's not even the weirdest ones. We got <laughs> it some shit, but there is not enough uh, digital storage on Zencaster for the chip shop stories. We'll do a whole separate thing about the chip shop stories. Well, maybe we'll have to do a second episode. I mean, this format,
0: it has no end. We can do what we want.
2: Of course, of course. Yeah, I I had lots of jobs. Yeah.
0: Jamie, you sound like you'd be excellent fun to have an adventure with. Wow. Yeah, I am. Good teammate. I hope so. Yeah. I won't leave you behind. Take it as far as it can go. Too far sometimes, yeah. I believe in that. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I honestly I like to keep these about an hour long. Sure. Seriously, we're going to have to do another one in the future Okayo. about more about more chip shop shenanigans. No problems. Excellent. Jamie, thank you so much. Really exciting Sabbath ways of releasing eight or nine track albums. Yeah, I feel I quite like maybe like that. Me
2: too. Yeah.
0: I think it's cool. It doesn't need to be 10 if 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 nine's good,
2: you know? Whatever, we've reached the point where, you know, especially in the digital age, whatever you want to do, whatever form your music wants to take, it can take, and I think it's very freeing. Thank you so much, Jamie. Looking forward to the to the next one. You're welcome. Cheers, buddy. Cheers, dude. I've
1: been working all day, on the side. running around like a blue
0: This is a Mighty Moon Media
3: Podcast. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. Save fifty dollars on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods at My Patriot Supply. You can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by three p.m. and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com.